Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. What does it mean to be agile? Can you really make an organization more agile? Or can you only make individuals? Today, I'm joined by Kyan Krippendorf, a strategy and innovation expert writing multiple best-selling books on the subject and also IMI's first masterclass speaker of the year. We talked about the biggest blockers of agility and innovation in an organization, how an individual can become more agile, and how you can draw out innovation from the front lines to keep delivering for your customers. So, Kai and hi, welcome to IMI. Thanks for having me, it's great to be here. Um, we're talking agility today, and I think wrapped up in that is innovation, strategy, and particularly sort of leaders' impacts on it all. What's your theory of the case? What's that through line that goes through your work? Well, most of my work has been in strategy and innovation, mm. and in the book prior to the one that I published a few months ago, I wrote one piece that was about Netflix. Mm. And I had written that you know, five or six years prior, and in that piece, I predicted that Netflix was gonna disappear. <laughs> because their model was built on helping people find content. Mm. And what I said was that the value of that middleman is gonna disappear, because it's easy for people to find things. Mm. And they would need to either own the customer or own the content, yeah. or both. And so based off their current strategy, I thought they were gonna go away. They're, they haven't gone away. Very much not. Right? And so I started thinking about, you know, how, why is that? And I, it's because of agility, that they're able to sense a change in the environment and they're able to react to it, mm. get ahead of it even. So I think that if we want to understand the longevity of a company, we should look less today in this fast-paced, digital, purpose-driven world that we're entering. Mm. We should look less at their strategy. Will their strategy work? And more at their agility. Do they have the right cultural, organizational, people, assets in place mm. to be able to act with agility? And so let's sort of start at the end. If you walked into a company, say you walk into Netflix today, what are those leadership behaviors? What's the things you will see probably on the surface level first and then, and then a little bit below afterwards? So the easy things to see are the organizational structures and then the harder things to see are the culture. Mm. Like kind of in the middle, I think, is the talent. First of all, I would say, you know, there's, there's, there's starting with leadership. There's four things. So leadership, talent, organizational structure, and mm. culture. That's at least how I bundled them. Yeah. Leadership, certainly leaders that talk about and seem to honestly care about agility, innovativeness, and take an organizational perspective to that. The structures are easy to look at. Mm. Do they invest resources in trying new things? Do they create organizational flexibility that allow people to work across silos? Can someone in marketing get excited about a project in operations, mm. get excited about a project in product, and, and move over there, right? Do the structures allow for risk-taking when someone fails, do they get a promotion or do they get a demotion? You know, so um, there are certain things that you can see in the organizational structure that you can, you know, that are obvious. Mm. Talent's interesting. Do, do you have the right talent? Do you recognize the right talent? I think that there's a misconception about what's the kind of person that can create that agility mm. inter internally, and we think that we think of it as they're administrative leaders. And they're entrepreneurs, right? Entrepreneurs, you know, they 
Maybe they wear jeans and hoodies <laughs> and they, they break things. But what I found, and the research supports, is that there is a certain character of a person who's effective at driving change from within. Mm. I'm not talking about the person at the top. I'm talking about the person who has an idea, who maybe is working in structures that suppress agility but are able to work through it. And there are some components that make them look like entrepreneurs. They, they tend to be innovative thinkers. They take proactive action. They have a strong market or customer awareness. But under that surface, what you're looking for are people who ha are intrinsically motivated to innovate. So they're not motivated by the financial gain. Do we motivate the wrong people then? Because you talk about those sort of administrative uh, roles. I presume a huge amount of innovation efficiencies could, become, could come from that sort of role if we were sort of encouraging the entrepreneurial mindset yeah. in those roles. Yes, yeah, I think so. And so both, um, I guess across two dimensions, one is the people who will see those operational or, or, or process improvements mm. are usually the people who are running the processes. Yeah, right? yeah of course. You know, um, IKEA is famous for introducing the flat pack box uh, that wasn't an idea that the CEO had or the ICEO had at the beginning of the, of the founding of the company. Mm -hmm. That came 10 years after the company was founded when one employee thought couldn't get a table into the back of a customer's car. He took the legs off and folded it and put it in. And the company recognized this, that's an interesting way to do things, and they adopted it. Well, I, I, we'll skip ahead because I was going to ask you about this, about sort of innovation at the front lines. You often hear about that's where innovation will come from. How can you set it up as a leader that you will actually hear about that person putting the table legs off and putting it in the back of the car? Yeah. How do you bridge that gap between the leadership and the front line? Well, you know, in my, in my research, I interviewed about 150 internal innovators and asked what were the barriers that stopped them from I had the idea to what was heard, mm. you know, and um, there's seven, but I think the four that get you to the point where the leader will hear it um, are intent, need, options, and value blockers. So intent is that you want to activate people's intent to innovate. If they don't have an intention, they might not even see the opportunities because mm. they don't think that that's their role. Need is they don't understand what the company needs. They might understand what the customer needs, but they don't understand the company's strategy. 55% of mid-level managers can't name even two of their company's top strategic priorities. So there's, mm. a, there's closed that gap. Options is about the ability to generate innovative options, and not just one idea. Um, I forget the name of the French philosopher who said that uh, there's nothing more dangerous than an idea when it's the only idea you have. So there's one thing to have a brilliant idea mm. and then dogmatically pursue it. There's another thing to see creating new ideas as just an activity, a constant, create a constant flow and portfolio of ideas. Yeah. And the last one's value blockers is where your idea or the new idea conflicts with the business model of the existing organization. And many employees give up at that point because there are lots of complications. It's almost like transplanting a heart, right? It's not an easy process. It's yeah. not an easy operation. You have to think through, how can I re-engineer the idea to remove these value blockers so that it is less in conflict with the business model mm -hmm. without compromising the power of the idea? And so I think that those four barriers, intent, need, options, value blockers, that's kind of a ladder that if we can remove those, then we start seeing a flow of ideas getting out into the organization and to action.
And how does that work in practice? Because I'd say we've all been, like, first of all, there was the suggestion box and, and then there was workshops. How do we still get those messages from the front line and not get translated and garbled and spinned between the message going to the front line and the leadership and then back down to the front line? What's the actual process, practical process? Yeah, I think that um, when you have a lot of people after the idea is presented, you have a lot of people assessing the idea. Mm. It, you have a lot of cooks, and yeah. then what you end up is just kind of mush, mm. right? Because a lot of opinions go into it. Will this work? Won't this work? And then we come, we would come up, we adjust the idea to kind of accommodate everyone's potential opinion. Mm. But you know what? The opinion that matters is what will work. And this is something that. Um, established companies have a difficulty doing, which is just putting it out there and mm. seeing how people react to it. Um, giving up this prove, plan, execute approach and embracing an act, learn, build approach. Um, another way to think of it is established organizations often ask people to prove something before they can do it. Yeah. But what we need to do is we need to often, especially when it's a new thing, we need to do it in order to prove it. And so that chicken and egg, we got to untangle and just allow people to say, to, to actually try things. Is that, so we always talk about psychological safety nets nowadays. Do we have to get one for leaders as well, especially in those sort of organizations where power can be diffuse and also the responsibility so people just don't take it? How do we give that safety net to the leaders? Uh-huh. So in give, give the safety net to leaders to make mistakes, make, yes. particularly in these big multinational organizations yes. where it is, there is a lot of responsibility across a, a large range of operations. Yeah, um, you know, so really valuing learning. I think you see companies that see, uh, that, that, that have psychological safety, they value uh, constantly learning. Right? Mm. They want to learn from mistakes, you know, that um, you know, you've seen the research on psychological safety that the nursing teams with uh, high psychological safety they fail more often mm. than the nursing teams without, but that's because they report it, right? <laughs> because they admit it, and so they are on a faster learning trajectory. Mm. Uh, I heard Jeff Bezos at a conference, he said, people think that we are, he's a CEO of um, Amazon, mm. uh, people think that we are risk-seeking or we're comfortable with risk. Actually, we hate risk. In fact, we're so risk-averse that we never fail. And what he meant was that when something doesn't go the way we think it'll go we've learned from it so when we do ROI we want to look at including the R we want to include the value of the mm. learning so that that psychological safety net essentially comes from leaders modeling that behavior yes um I used to work in conferences and it always infuriated me uh, that doctors only ever met doctors and you know biologists only met other biologists rather than putting doctors in a room full of engineers and, and seeing if they can solve each other's problems yeah. How can we create that sort of uh, atmosphere in an organization where we're getting people to make ideas and connections across departments? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, was, I just want to like dissect a little bit about why that's important. Is mm. because I think that um, language is a problem-solving tool. Mm. You know, before there was the term inventory terms, companies were growing and they were losing money. And then someone started playing around with potential ways of solving it, and they invented this concept, inventory terms, and once people understood inventory terms, they managed themselves differently, and they could grow without burning so much cash. So mm. think of these uh, concepts that emerge in language as tools. Now, if you try to talk, if you jump into a, 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 a surgery room, they're gonna be using lots of different language terms. They use a vocabulary that we don't understand, mm. right? And it, but, but it's, it's a precise vocabulary for solving the kinds of problems that go into the surgery room. Mm. 
Um, it, lawyers, you know, have their vocabulary. And so the, the problem is that when you face it, when you're solving a new problem, that your language tools might not be the right ones. You want to drill a hole and you have a hammer, mm. right? And so it is important to be able to translate language from one domain to the other in order to be able to reach for a different tool that might be able to solve the problem when your vocabulary mm. is uh, insufficient, right? Mm. This is why I use this term outthinking a lot, which is that you're thinking outside of the existing vocabulary, you know? But, you know, mechanically, um, there are simple ways to do that, you know, like have a fair, you know, one of the companies that I looked at, they, they, they have this idea fair where they have... Uh, it, it, it's almost like a festival, like a um, like you'd see it bef before a conference, and uh, scientists will come and they'll set up their uh, from R and D, they'll set up their stands and they'll share what they're working on, mm. and then um, salespeople and marketing people will come and learn about it and they'll interact. You know, they they they, they found, for example, there was uh, these people create. Paint surfaces, pretty much, kind of any for sure. You can't go a day without touching one of their. You're yeah. touching their tabletop. You're touching their, um, you know, the the screen on your phone. They make those surfaces, and one of the uh, and one of the salespeople were saying, you know, one of the problems that our clients have, who are airlines, is that dark planes absorb heat, and they get hot, and with the you know, fuel efficiency becoming more important, mm. they're burning too much fuel to keep people cool while they're on the tarmac. And what can a surface company do with that, right? <laughs> what, 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 what role they have? So, so, but then he connected with someone that was working on a special paint that reflected UV uh, light or reflected light beyond the spectrum of sight, but let everything else pass. And so they talked, they said, well, you know what we could do? We could paint a blue layer underneath and then paint this on top and so we see blue, but all the other spectrum is being reflected off as white, so the plane stays cooler. Right? It's funny, as you say, it's just two different languages meeting together and then creating almost a new language, a new innovation between yeah. each other. Yes. It's yep. funny. Um, let's, uh, let's look at a few practical techniques. Um, I know this is a very broad question. Uh, techniques to make an organization more agile. Where, what's your process? Where do you start? What's the first thing you do as you walk in the room? Well, first of all, you want to make sure that leadership has a sense of urgency. Yeah. That they create this case for the future if we don't become more agile. Because right? without that, it kind of falls apart. Mm. The easiest things to do then are to train people on a few things. Train them in agile prototyping, in you know, conducting inexpensive, designing inexpensive experiments, mm -hmm. and teach them in business model design. You know, use the... Business model canvas or lean canvas, and have people gain awareness of that. A business model is a so almost start training them to think in a yeah, mm. exactly. It's arming them, go back to vocabulary, arming them with the vocabulary to solve these two problems. Uh, which, after you get to the value blockers, well, the value blockers, which I referred to before, you solve that with business model design. Mm. The next uh, barrier, which is people being asked to prove it in order to do it when they need to do it to prove it. The way to solve that is through agile experimentation. Mm -hmm. Then the next challenge is teaming. And so you can teach teaming techniques that enable people to build this groundswell of support around the idea because not everyone that you need on the team to pursue this idea is going to be reporting to the same person. So you need to be able to inspire people outside of that person's code of control to work on the idea. Mm. right? And then the final thing is uh, political acumen. 
being able to understand stakeholders and manage internal stakeholders and find that that island of freedom. If you put all these things together, what I've laid out is uh, my model that I introduced, and I don't think this is the truth, but it's a helpful model just to keep mm-hmm. track of the seven things, is I-N-O-V-A-T-E, innovate, intent, need, options, value blockers, act, team, environment. Mm. It always seems very, it's so complex that you just need to, it, it, there's not a template, you just yeah. need to, to be agile. We want a simple, yeah, we want a simple, we want a simple pill. Yeah, it never happens. Yeah. Uh, so did I ask the wrong question there? I asked, how do you make an organization more agile? And you immediately went to, how do you make the people more agile? Well, I think that the organization, so there's six of those seven is through training and development. Mm. So train people to have intent, people to understand the need, train people to generate innovative options, train people to remove value blockers, train people to conduct experiments, which is act, train people to team, which is teaming. Yeah. You know that. The E is if you're on the training side, it's train people political acumen and get them to see the political challenge as part of the problem-solving process. Mm. But that's also where a leader comes in because the leader creates those islands of freedom. Right, which goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is it's these four drivers of cultivating the right talent, putting in the right structures, developing the right culture, and leadership's role in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the cultural dimension, the things that are shown to correlate with high degrees of agility are things that you'd expect. Um, do you, does your culture allow for risk-taking? Does it encourage and celebrate innovative thinking? Does it encourage proactive action? And does it allow for, uh, does it encourage uh, customer awareness and market awareness? Mm. I think of those, the one that, you know, is maybe less obvious or kind of less appreciated is proactive action. I think that that often exists under the surface that Mm. people are trained or we're expected to ask permission. I was always told, do it. Ask for forgiveness for other yes, permission. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, exactly. And, and a way to a way to you know, I work in some companies that for some clients that are you know, very risk averse because they build things like spacesuits or landing gears, mm. you know, and you have to be so acutely rigorous in in, in managing and reducing risk when you're building those things. You can do that through process, you can do that through culture. When you do it through culture, then often that cultural, those cultural norms start permeating other parts of the business. Mm. And if you're thinking of a new HR policy in which the risk of failure is low relative to mm. landing here, right? You still will have a tendency to apply the the, the level of risk aversion, right? Mm. So it, it requires you to be able to separate those and Let's, let's look at the, the sort of blockers to agility. I've seen you use a quote from Gandhi describing an innovation process. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they win. Yeah. Or then you win, sorry. Yeah. My question to you is, who are they? Those are the people that will either resist you or copy you. Mm. Um, and when it gets out to the market, those are your, com- those are your competitors. Uh, when, the, when you get into the company, and this is the dilemma, is that what stopped your competitors from ignoring them, from, from uh, copying or uh, competing with you mm. is that they discount you. Mm. It's not that they can't do it. I mean, Google, I mean, um, Yahoo could have bought Google and Blockbuster could have bought Netflix. You know, it's never that the incumbent can't do it or the competitor can't do it. It's usually that they choose not to do mm. it. Now, they choose not to do it because it's inconsistent with some prevailing belief or dogma, the way things do things, right? And the problem is that your people, your colleagues, you, 
have grown up in the same industry as your competitors. Mm. So going back to your vocabulary, if you're using the same vocabulary, you're using, you, you fold on to the same beliefs. And so if that idea will make your competitors ignore and laugh at you, it will make your colleagues ignore and laugh at them. You talked about competitors there. Are leaders, and in, I mean internal leaders, are they the biggest blockers of agile thinking and innovation in organization? I have found, so I run this peer group of chief strategy officers, and it gives me a chance to kind of talk about these things across lots of different mm. industries. And what keeps coming up is this idea of it's not the leaders. The leaders want it. And they appreciate it. They know it. They're smart, and they know what it mm. is. The bottom third or bottom half of the organization, you know, they want it, they know it, they can learn it, they often understand it. A lot of these strategy officers talk about this concrete middle of the pyramid. Inertia. Now, the, 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 there's a middle layer of middle managers, right, who block it, and maybe not intentionally. Is it always the same people, or is it people on different days acting in certain ways? Interesting. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that there certainly are people who are what I would call um, negative detractors. Mm. Right? They will reject it no matter what because they um, will lose power or because they just don't want to change. Mm. Maybe they've gone through so much change that they're just fed up with it. Um, but there are also positive detractors who are justifiably um, concerned about what the change would do for mm. the organization. Um, those people, you know, it's good to learn from them. What are their concerns? They, they could also be right. They could be right. Yeah, they could be right. Absolutely. Uh, and then beyond that, I think that, you know, the way humans make decisions is collectively. The humans have not created anything of significance other than through mm. collaboration, through cooperation. And so you almost have to think of a group of humans as a as a a mind, a super mind in itself, right? And so you got to look at the the collective mind, and that appears in the processes and mm. norms, right? And there's no one person. One one of the people I interviewed, he said it's like trying to hug a school of fish. <laughs> you know, it's there, but you try to hug them, it's gone. So, you know, I think we got to also attack the the super mind and look at what the, what are the mechanics of the super mind. Um, it's interesting when you say that. How much is agile is, is stopping what you've always been doing? Uh, basically, is agility as much about discarding sort of outdated processes as it is coming up with new ones? Yeah, certainly, certainly. I think that you, um, you know, I guess agility is about this going from coming up with a plan and then executing it towards a cycle of observe, orient, decide, and act. It comes from this framework of UDA. Observe, you you solved my next right? question. Okay. <laughs> um, so we can go into that. That's, but that's the origin. So in a way, it's, it's this cycle. But certainly for anything, anything comes out of that, there are three outcomes, right? It either is rejected, mm -hmm. it's incorporated into what is, or it is, or it replaces what is, right? And so if there's something good and you can't replace, and it needs to replace what is because it doesn't fit with what already is there, mm. it'll be rejected. Mm. So certainly there's a need to be willing to let go. Mm. Okay, let's get into individual agility. And as I say, you saw my question, OODA loop. Yeah. Um, some listeners may be familiar. It seems to be a fairly famous concept, but it was new to me. So can you just explain it? 
to me. Yeah, so there was a fighter pilot named John Boyd, U.S. Um, Air Force, and he was known as the 60-second Boyd. He had his running bet that his entire life that within 60 seconds if he got in the air with you, he'd have you locked in his sights. And even at old age, he never lost his Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he had a... Um, 10 to 1, he, he trained his platoon, his squadron, so he became a squadron commander. Um, they had a 10 to 1 kill ratio in the, in the Korean War, even though they were fighting superior um, planes, faster mm. planes with, with better weapons. And so when he retired, the military asked him to explain his theory. Now the theory, if you look it up, there you can get the original documents that he used to present to the military. I saw it online yeah, then okay, last night. Yeah, 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 very but you can <laughs> simplify it into uh, Uda. He said, mm. it really comes down to observe, orient, decide, and act. If you can observe what's going on in the environment, orient yourself to what's happening. And McKinsey had the, the so what, the, the implication, right? Putting together the picture. Mm. Then make a decision based off of that and then take action. But, so, but what makes it different is what happens next is you begin the cycle again and you're observing the result of your action, right? Mm. Is it working or not working? If it's working, let's do more and let's adjust. And, and then observe, orient, decide, and act, right? So the key is to get inside your competitor's UDA cycle to do that more quickly. And, you know, Silicon Valley um, then converted that. Well, let's say that that informed um, um, my, my father um, studied in Germany, you know, in the 1940s or 50s at the Ulm School of Design, mm -hmm. which created the Bauhaus movement, which then became kind of the, the beginning of the kind of design movement that now is we, we, we assign to Apple, right? Mm -hmm. And they really created or, you know, were the foundation of human-centered design. Human-centered design comes out of UDA. Put something in front of a customer, see how they react, and then adjust the product, and see how they react, and so um, then that becomes, it goes into software, and we have the spiral method of developing software as opposed to the, um, the, 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 you know, the, the linear method, which then goes into lean, which then goes into scrum. And mm. if you follow the traces, that all traces back to this idea of Luna. What I found most interesting was, this was a high-pressure situation, literally life or death, and out of the four things, three of them are essentially deciding what to do. Mm -hmm. Observing, orientating, deciding and then acting yes. it's that old quote of um if i had more time i would, would have written a shorter letter uh -huh, or you uh -huh, know that sort of thing uh -huh, uh -huh. so even in that high pressure situation he slowed down to move fast true but there is a drive to do that quickly and mm. not take too much time making the decision because there is a cost to making the decision in a high pressure environment the opportunity cost of not make of, of, of waiting to kick the op, make the figure out the optimal decision mm. is high but even in that hyper situation, it's so easy just to go straight to decision and action rather right. than observing right. orientation right. first. Exactly. Yeah. So is this a mental technique you can apply to daily situations? I'm going to give you an example yes. so you can work off it. You've just been told a senior lit manager who's leading a major change project have decided they're going to jump ship to your direct competitor. So how do you use the OODA loop in that situation? I hit you on yeah. the spot here. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's great. I'm, and I'm trying not to flip to my other frameworks. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, it's interesting. So observe, you would kind of, first of all, not you would piece together multiple pieces of information. So observe is really about, to get from observe to orient, you don't just look at one piece, but you look at multiple pieces and try to put the piece. So you, he, he's going to leave. What's going on in your company? What's going on in that company? What's going on in the market? What's going on with his or her family, right? Mm. And um, 
you know, and, and piece that together. Then try to orient and create an overall picture to understand the system as opposed to just that one symptom of the system, mm. right? Like, you know, the you know, doctors that will look at the, you know, not just the, the, the injury, but also the, you know, I don't know, the blood system and the nervous system. I'm going to put these together, right? Mm. Um, make a small decision, right? A decision, ideally, that you could be, that could be a, a, a two-way door, um, that's not a okay, you know, let it go or I don't know, uh, I don't know what I don't know what the decisions would be, right? Yeah. But the, I think one one I don't say essential, but if it goes with the philosophy of Uda is you're making a small decision. It is not the final decision. And then you come back. And then you come back. Yeah, perfect. Um, I want to end now. You have a master class in about half an hour, so um, thanks for taking the time with us. I want to end with leadership behaviors around agility and innovation. And specifically, I think we just talked about it as part of the OODA loop there, making time to strategize and generally develop their capabilities in these areas to strategize better and execute better. In your experience, do senior leaders take enough time? I know it's easy to say no, but do they model that behavior for their people and what's the way around it to get that time? Yeah. Um, it's a common yeah, question. Yeah. It's a, it's a real well, no, I think that, um... You know, you know, with the strategy officers, this this strategy network that I organize, that what what comes up often is that there's just no time. There's mm. just, just, just our time to think is so compressed, which is why they value coming together and closing the door for half a day and just getting to think about the future. Um, but that usually happens like once, maybe twice a year. Yes, no, it needs to happen all the time. It needs to happen like in the hallways. It needs to happen. You know, you need to be able to shift. And you know, there's this idea that. Um, you know, that what you want to do is you want to zoom out 10 years and zoom into mm. six months. And you need to, I think if you think of it as a temporal uh, rather than, because I think that planning, when you say planning and doing, underneath that is sort of an implication that planning isn't valuable mm. and doing is valuable. Deciding where you're going to go to dinner, you know, let's just talk, let's just go to dinner, right? But if you spend the time deciding, then when you walk out of the door, you'll know whether to turn left or right. And so the planning cha- shapes the future, shapes reality. Mm. But so I, I think it's, it's, if you think of it maybe in a temporal way and say, hey, let's zoom out and think about the future and then zoom in and say, how are we going to tack towards that future? And a good anchor to get there is to spend the time, say, once defining what is that 10 year future that we want, that we think the future, what, what will it look like if you're making cars? What does the future of mobility look like 10 years from now? Mm. Capture it in a simple phrase. Like at Cisco, they have this phrase of the the the, the intelligent network or something like that. Um, and so they spent the time thinking about all the trends and orient themselves to what that future is. But now you have an anchor that you can quickly pull up. Now you can do this in, 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 in a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. Before you, okay, we're, we're about to make a decision on where the button goes on this router. Okay, remember, the seamless, you know, this, you know the, the, the intelligent web. What does yeah. that look like? In that future, what would it look like? Okay, then we should put it on this side rather than that side, right? Mm. So I think you, you you need to have a trigger to be able to get out there quickly. Perfect. Um, I, I know we went very quickly there on a big subject, but uh, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to the masterclass. Yeah, thank you so much.